Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The topic, out in the wilderness, John the Baptist preaches a message that transforms the lives of those who believe in the coming Savior. And the title of our message, Operation Desert Transform. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, are mostly, I would guess, those whose lives have been transformed by an encounter with the living God, Jesus Christ. You've given us your spirit to indwell us. We want to learn today about his coming upon us to empower us for service and uh, just give us victory in general in the Christian life and spread the gospel. And so do all these things, Lord. Use this text. Uh, be our teacher, we pray. In Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. In an iconic line of dialogue from the movie The Untouchables, Sean Connery's character accuses his attacker of bringing a knife to a gunfight. His quick-witted quip has become a popular way of describing being poorly or wrongly equipped for the task at hand. The task at hand for every Christian was stated by Jesus when he said in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A little later on, Jesus told his followers that this tack was no knife fight. It wasn't a gunfight either. It would be more like a nuclear exchange. That's because we don't wrestle against natural forces. As we're told by the Apostle Paul, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We need to show up with something supernatural in this fight, and that is exactly what Jesus went on to tell his first followers. In the book of Acts, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They did, and they were. They did receive power on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they were witnesses to Jesus to the end of the earth in the preaching of the gospel that continues to this day. By listening carefully to the opening words of the gospel of Mark, we'll see that he highlights the baptism with the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 8 as a sort of doomsday weapon that gave Jesus and that always gives Christians the advantage against Satan and the rulers of the darkness of this age. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are guaranteed the baptism of the Holy Spirit by which you are enabled to serve. And number two, Jesus manifested the baptism of the Holy Spirit by which he was enabled to serve. Let's take a look first of all uh, at our guarantee in verses one through eight. Now, Mark is the spirit-inspired author of the second gospel. He is the well-known John Mark of the book of Acts. John was his Hebrew name. Out among Gentiles, he was called Mark. He was the son of a Jerusalem widow whose large home was a meeting place for the believers during the early days of the church. Big-hearted Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was his cousin. He was well-known, first, for deserting Paul and Barnabas on one of their mission trips. When Barnabas wanted to take Mark on their next trip, Paul refused, and it led to the two men parting ways. Mark was well known in the end for being restored to fellowship and to ministry. In his letters to the Colossians and to Philemon, Paul sent greetings to Mark. 
In Philemon, Paul included Mark among those who he called my fellow laborers. These references indicate that full reconciliation had taken place between Paul and Mark and that Mark was actively laboring with Paul in the gospel. In 2 Timothy 4.11, written shortly before his death in Rome, Paul requested Timothy to come and added, take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Mark also spent considerable time with the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 5, Peter sent greetings to the churches in Asia Minor and added greetings from, quote, Mark, my son. He's referring to Mark as a son in the faith, not as his biological son. It was from Peter, from his eyewitness accounts of Jesus, that Mark compiled this gospel. At one point, Mark was an utter embarrassing failure, but he was restored to fellowship. He got back into the fight. God used him to write an account of Jesus Christ that has ministered to multiplied millions of people. Maybe you failed. Maybe you're failing right now. Or maybe you're just idling for some reason. You're needed in the fight. I pray that these studies in Mark will refresh you. Now, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the gospel began when God came into the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned, promising to come as a man, to die for their sins, and to redeem what they had forfeited there. Mark was announcing the beginning of the active ministry of Jesus Christ, that person who was promised in the garden. It is generally agreed that Mark was writing to a Gentile audience to emphasize the fact that Jesus was a servant. Each gospel has its own emphasis. The emphasis of the gospel of Mark is to present Jesus Christ as a servant. By stating right away that Jesus is the Son of God, Mark was saying something truly remarkable. He was saying that God, the creator and sustainer of life, is a servant at heart. Some therefore say the key verse in Mark would be 1045, chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for the human race. And, and so the Son of God is going to be presented in this gospel as the servant of man. And it's, uh, you know, we're so used to it as Christians. You know, we talk about serving and Jesus as service. That you, you need to stop sometimes and think about it. Jesus, who created all things, stooped to serve us. What leader does that? What, who, who does that? We have a hard time doing it in our homes, let alone uh, to... Uh, a universe full of people that are in sin. You're going to notice that Mark's gospel moves rapidly. In that respect, it feels like a servant's gospel as Jesus goes from ministry to ministry. Then in verse 2, we read, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Mark puts together portions of two prophets in this quote, Malachi and Isaiah. Fulfilled prophecy sets the Bible apart as absolutely unique among the writings of, of all the world, but especially about what is called religious writings. Any other religious writings are knives brought to a gunfight in that they can make no such claims. 
It's offensive, really, to put the writings of other religions in the same category as the Bible. It, it really, I'm not saying you should be offended by it, but if you think about it, it's offensive. The Bible is in its own category. If you study comparative religions, it ought to be just all the other religions of the world, not Christianity. Because Christianity is a relationship with the living God who rose from the dead and is alive forevermore and whose word is alive. Who goes on record saying this is going to happen and then it happens exactly the way he says it does in great detail. No other religious writing has that. I was watching something crazy on television the other day and they, people always want to talk about Nostradamus. The guy was an imbecile, crazed imbecile. And they, they, uh, they, they're always trying to find prophecies. And there's some crazy quatrain, they call it, where he mentions Hister and a great battle. And they say, well, there it is, Adolf Hitler, predicted by Nostradamus. I say, well, except that it's Hister, not Hitler, and none of this makes any sense. And, and uh, well, you know, it's a prophecy. <laughs> I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. As opposed to God who says, Cyrus, king of Persia, is going to make a decree allowing the people to go back. And guess what? Cyrus, king of Persia, years later does it. So much so that critics have to say, well, that must have been written after it happened. Why? Because there's no such thing as prophecy. And so they admit that the religious writings of the world don't have prophecy. And then we say, oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And it's always accurate. And so... Uh, Mark reaches into the Old Testament and he brings out these two prophets. In these prophecies, God the Father was promising his son that before his earthly ministry began, he would send an appropriate messenger to announce him and to prepare the people. And so in verse 4, John came, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Came from where? Came how? I'm only asking those questions this morning to emphasize how rapidly Mark is moving. He gives no background. He gives no history, just the facts. Some people think, uh, some scholars think that a lot of the Gospel of Mark are sermons that Peter preached, where he was just saying, hey, this is what happened, uh, and then people would get saved. Let this encourage you, though, that although we want to be ready to give answers to what we believe, sometimes just the straightforward telling of the facts is what the Holy Spirit wants to use in reaching hearts. You don't have to be a scholar at all or know the answer to every question in order to preach Jesus to people. And sometimes I think our attempts at answering questions get in the way of just the Word of God having its work. One of my favorite stories, and one of yours too, I'm sure, is the man who was healed, uh, the blind man, and then the religious reader, leaders, they, they didn't, they were trying to find some reason to kick him out of the synagogue, kick him out of the temple because it was too much for them to deal with that Jesus was healing people, and they kept peppering him with questions. I mean, these guys are like, you know, professors at universities to us. I mean, you know, people who are supposedly really smart and this guy had been blind since birth and you know he's in in a general sense ignorant i don't say that to belittle him but he was ignorant especially compared to them and he finally said look you guys should know the answer to that all i know is that a minute ago i was blind and now i'm not 
And they said, all right, get out of here. We can't take this. And so a lot of times I think you and I need to think, well, I, I don't know. I maybe can get an answer for you on that question. Uh, and there's an approach that we could take to that question. And I said, but what I know is that I was a hell-doomed sinner, and then God got a hold of my life, and he transformed my life, and he lives in me and through me. And uh, I know that to be true. He saved my marriage, he saved this, he saved that, and this thing works. And so don't be afraid to just share what you know. And what you know best is what the Lord is doing in your own heart and in your own life. And, and um, most of the time, I've found over the years that the questions people ask you are smoke and mirrors. There's an issue in their heart and, and they're just trying to throw you off. And so sometimes we just need to be simple, listen to the Holy Spirit, say what needs to be said, use scripture more than our own arguments, and, uh, and don't feel like that's insufficient. Remember, this is like uh, you know, a powerful thing, the word of God. The Jews had any number of rituals involving water, but the only people who were immersed underwater, who were baptized, were proselytes. Now, proselytes were Gentiles who wished to convert to Judaism. They were circumcised, and then after seven days, they were baptized in running water by full immersion. And so that was what Jews were familiar with when it came to baptism. For a Jew, an ethnic Jew, to submit to water baptism was a really big deal. You were kind of saying that you needed to start all over again the way a proselyte did the way a Gentile did. So this is huge. This isn't, you know, we, we tend to overlook, actually we tend to overlook just about everything because of our own experiences and biases. And sometimes you need to really step back and think, this is huge, that thousands upon thousands of Jews who'd grown up in, the, in Judaism were submitting to baptism, which was usually reserved only for brand new converts who were Gentiles. And so this is a big thing. Now, the proper reading of these words is repent and be baptized because of the remission of sins. Remission means sending away a dismissal. It speaks of the cancellation of your sins without demanding the deserved punishment. Repentance is a change of mind with regard to your sin. You acknowledge you're a sinner, that you sin, and you consciously turn away from it. Remission of sin is part of the salvation which God gives the believing sinner when he places his faith in the Lord Jesus. Remission of sins cannot be the result of baptism, but rather they are the reason for baptism. You have your sins remitted by faith in Jesus Christ, and then you are baptized as a testimony to the fact that you are saved. Those who were being baptized were already, had already repented of their sins. And that's the same today. Baptism does not save. It cannot save. It is not necessary for salvation. We are baptized out of obedience because the Lord commands it and we publicly testify that we have been saved. And that's why sometimes it's better to call it believer's baptism. That sets it apart from infant baptism or ritual baptism or however, you know, at least then people say, oh, you practice believer's baptism. You see baptism as uh, following salvation, not as bringing salvation, uh, not as necessary for salvation. And we would say, yeah, because that's the way the Bible presents it. And so these were coming out. They were learning about the remission of their sins by their Savior. They were believing in that message and then they were being baptized. Verse 5. 
Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and all were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. A steady stream of people went out into the wilderness, listened to John's simple gospel message, and submitted to baptism. The wording indicates that John himself did all the baptizing. I don't know if I've ever really thought about that before, but he must have had really shriveled pinky toes by the end of the day. Think about it. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of people coming out, being baptized either backward or forward. It's kind of funny, actually. The, you know, obviously, we, we believe in baptism by immersion. Uh, but then those among our immersion group argue about whether you go backwards or forward into the water. And uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. I was talking to the boys when they were last time, I think, in Chile. Was it in Chile? that, you know, it was important that you go down in, the, in this way and not backwards. Um, we do it that way because you, have you ever baptized anybody? Probably not, but if you have, it's incredibly hard to lift people up once they're, you know, you have to have a lot of water to do it and stuff. And so we used to try and do that here in the little baptismal. When people would go back, it was like breaking our, and they'd come up and this big wave would come over, you know, and stuff. So now we've made it a little bit easier and I hope that doesn't ruin your faith in Jesus Christ, that we, we practice forward immersion baptism. So next time, if you want to have fun with your friends, they say, well, we practice immersion baptism. Forward or backward immersion? Because it, it matters to some people. But anyway, John is baptizing all these people by himself. And really, he's out in the wilderness, in the Jordan River. It's probably hot and weird out there. I mean, this is, a, this is hard. This is a, this is a day's ministry. This is aerobic for him, you know? I mean, this is tough. Uh, and um, did it all by himself. The word indicates that. Now, the confessing of their sins didn't necessarily happen as they were being baptized. It means those who were baptized were agreeing with the message that they were sinners in need of forgiveness. And so they had confessed their sins before God. Now, John was clothed, verse 6, with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Let's just say that his dress and his diet were consistent with someone preaching repentance out in the desert. This is what you would expect. The gospel should affect your lifestyle choices. You should dress and diet, that is, live in all respects, like someone whose sins are remitted, who has repented, and who is inviting others to do the same. I don't know what that looks like for you. I only know what it looks like for me, hopefully. I'm simply saying that the gospel should dictate your decisions. And so John was dressed and he ate and he lived appropriately for his message uh, at that time. And he was led by the Spirit to do it. He didn't come up with that himself. This wasn't a technique. You know, he wasn't trying to set himself apart. You know, he wasn't the next televangelist, you know, or with, with, you know, with, with a gimmick or anything. This was what was required of him at the time. And uh, you and I, no matter where we've been scattered by the Lord, we want to pay attention to our life and our lifestyle so that it obviously doesn't stumble or offend people, but on the positive side, it would actually portray that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So verse 7, he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Now the verb tense for come speaks of an imminence. There was an urgency in John's presentation. He knew Jesus was about to step on the scene. Since we don't know what life holds for us, we ought to be somewhat urgent in presenting the gospel. We can't assume we have tomorrow. 
John thought of himself as the lowest possible servant. He wasn't worthy to perform foot washing. He wasn't worthy to remove sandals either, only maybe to loose the sandal strap. I mean, you, this is probably the least amount of service he could think of. And so foot washing, we always say in teaching the Bible, is the job of the lowest servant. Well, then he says, but before you wash the feet, you've got to take the sandals off. So that's an even lower servant. But before you take the sandals off, you have to unstrap it. That's the lowest servant. John, get over here and unstrap. That's all you're good for is to unstrap the sandal. Then this guy will take it off and that guy will wash the feet. I mean, so you are low on the totem pole, you might say. And that's what John is saying. A quote by C.S. Lewis has been circulating on social media. I like it. Lewis says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And that's what uh, John portrays, this humility. It wasn't that he was trying to denigrate himself or lower himself. He says, I, I don't even think of myself. And if I do, I'm thinking that I'm probably not even worthy to unstrap a sandal. Uh, and, and, and so uh, think of yourself less. And you know what, if you could perfect this, if, if through the Spirit we could get into just thinking of ourselves less, you'd have so much more fun in life. You wouldn't be mad at people. You wouldn't be in competition with people. You wouldn't be at odds with people. Who cares what they do? Who cares what they think? Who cares what they say about you? There's one who loves you. There's one who died for you, who knows enough about you to think that part of how they treat you is accurate because you really are kind of a weird person. But he loves you anyway, and he's perfecting you. And so we need to really lock into this idea of thinking of ourselves less. Verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The you looks beyond those whom John had baptized in the Jordan. It's a statement to anyone, to everyone who hears the gospel. John's physical baptism was a symbol of a spiritual work that was coming after the Messiah finished his work of paying the debt in full for sin that was owed by the human race. John called it a baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is a highly charged phrase which sadly divides Christians. We argue over the precise ministries of God the Holy Spirit and about the scope of his continuing work in the world today and in the future. We disagree within our own saved ranks, probably even here at our own church, with what exactly the baptism with the Holy Spirit is and just exactly when and how it occurs, if it does. It may not be completely possible, but let's try to set our biases aside for a moment and hear what John said in light of what we know Jesus said and did. After Jesus rose from the dead... He appeared to his disciples and he gave them the Holy Spirit to indwell them. John 20, 22 says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. To these same now spirit indwelt believers, he would go on a few days later to say this in the book of Acts, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A few verses earlier, Jesus had referred to this as a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so believers whom he had breathed upon who had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he went on later to say, now you're going to wait 
because you still need this baptism with the Holy Spirit. After the Holy Spirit was in them, and after he had come upon them on the day of Pentecost, the Christians kept on asking for him to empower them, and he kept on manifesting himself to them. For example, Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and when the disciples had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Well, wait a minute, I thought they were filled with the Spirit when Jesus breathed on them, and I thought he came upon them on the day of Pentecost. So what's up with this? How can they be filled with the Spirit again? Then I would add for our consideration this passage where Jesus is addressing believers. This is from Luke 11. He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so if you string this together, and I think it's, it's proper to do so, here was a bunch of guys that had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then something called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, where he came upon them and they began to preach the word of God with boldness. And then they kept on asking for more of that or a repeat of that or a refreshing of that, and they got it. And then Jesus said, yeah, that's exactly right. Ask and seek and knock. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, because your Father will give you what? The Holy Spirit. And so it's all pretty clear to me so you can look at that through a theological bias or presupposition. You can draw all kinds of conclusions. Or you can take it as it is, simply and descriptively, concluding that the normal Christian life is one in which the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom you receive at the moment of salvation, wants to come upon you to empower you in your service, and who wants to go on refreshing you in new fillings of his power, and whom you should ask for. And that's just normal. And any theology that destroys that chain of events is, is, I think, not a good theology. Because this is the picture of the normal New Testament life. You've been guaranteed then, I say, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Without it, without Him, you're holding a knife while facing a nuclear warhead. Sounds funny, but too much that passes as spiritual in ministry is really just our own energy clothed with Bible terminology. There's a lot that goes on in every church that is fleshly. I don't mean sinful fleshly. It's just the energy of the flesh keeping things going. Keeping things going is a good example, as a matter of fact. I think in a vibrant ministry, our church, any church, some things are going to stop, don't you think? If something has been going on for 50 years exactly the same way as it went on 50 years ago, maybe that's from the Lord, but probably not. Is there, you know, what's propping that up? Is it really the Holy Spirit? And so, uh, and we have trouble with that as Christians. Sometimes if we cancel a ministry or say, hey, we're done with that, it's like, wait, what, did we fail? Well, no, we're just done with that because we're being led into some other area. Having begun in the Spirit, when we are saved, we must seek Him to continue in Him in our serving. Now, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus manifested the baptism of the Holy Spirit by which He served. I never realized how fast they drive in a presidential motorcade. I was talking to Sergeant Mundy one day, and he was telling me about this. To protect the president, officers are instructed even to crash into suspicious vehicles if necessary. You don't want to kind of creep out or make a suicide stop in... Uh, 
in, in, in a motorcade situation because they'll, they'll kill you. They don't know. You could be a terrorist. In fact, the high rates of speed and the defensive posture that is assumed protecting the president has led to many deaths, especially of motor officers who are accompanying the uh, motorcade. If it's such a big deal to prepare the way for POTUS, you'd think it would have been a really big deal to have the Son of God come from Nazareth to the wilderness where John was baptizing. And so let's see his entourage here. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. No escort, no parade. Jesus walked the 50 plus miles by himself, probably camping out under the stars that he created along the way. Again, please notice the bare-bones approach Mark takes. No record of the, conversion, or the conversation rather John had with Jesus, initially refusing to baptize him because, as he said, I have need to be baptized by you. No record of Jesus responding by telling John it was necessary to fulfill all things. Still, there's enough here to communicate that Jesus, the Son of God, who would die so sins could be remitted, was identifying with the human race. He was God, but he was also man. He was the unique God-man who alone could therefore die for the sins of the world to save us. Verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Mark repeatedly uses the word immediately. It keeps the action moving in this fast-paced gospel. It's like a transition word. We might jokingly say, as some have, that Mark puts the go back in gospel. It's the go gospel. Jesus saw the heavens literally torn open is the word. How far he saw, we cannot say. Have you seen the Avengers movie, The Age of Ultron? There's a tear in space through which an intimidating alien invading force comes threatening the earth. Through the tear at Jesus' baptism came a dove. Not very dramatic, not very intimidating, but far more powerful than anything the world had ever experienced up to this point. The Spirit of God upon the God-man. The Spirit had been a part of Jesus' life from conception. This is something new. This is a baptism with the Holy Spirit to empower Jesus for his ministry. Don't confuse this idea of baptism. Jesus was water baptized to fulfill all righteousness, but the Holy Spirit coming upon him, this is, this is something Jesus had not yet experienced. It was the power he needed for the ministry that was ahead of him. And this is why he could say to his own disciples, you're not ready until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you can be witnesses. Jesus lived in relative obscurity, right, for 30 years. There's all kinds of crazy legends about things that he did when he was a boy and all that. None of them are true. He just lived in obedience, driving everybody crazy because he was perfect. But, um, you know, he didn't, in one sense, he did nothing for 30 years. Then he steps forward, he's baptized in water to identify with the human race. And the very first thing that happens is he's baptized with the Spirit, and it's on. His ministry is on from that moment forward. He's unstoppable. If Jesus needed this, don't you think we do? And if Jesus was identifying with us, don't you think this is an experience we also can and should have? It's very simple. Why a dove? It was the animal associated with humility and innocence, but also sacrifice as it was commonly used in the temple, especially by the poor. And so it speaks of the humility, the servant nature of Jesus, and the fact that he's going to go to the cross 
and sacrifice himself. Verse 11, then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The meaning is you and you alone. Jesus had been eternally with the Father and the Spirit in heaven. Here he was, the God-man on the earth as promised in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman who would crush Satan. This phrase, in whom I am well pleased, can mean two things, and I say it means both. Number one, it can mean that God the Father was and had always been pleased with Jesus in eternity past, but also in his life as a man thus far for some 30 obscure years. Uh, Second, well pleased can also mean to select. The verb can be translated to select, implying that his incarnation and the whole plan of redeeming the human race is a thing that is pleasing to God. It pleases God to save. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and eternal life. When you got saved, it was pleasing to God, and angels in heaven rejoiced. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Drove is a very strong term. It doesn't, however, mean that Jesus was driven against his will. It means he had a strong sense of the Holy Spirit sending him, leading him, if you prefer, out into the wilderness. He knew what the Spirit wanted him to do. We might say that God spoke to him. Do you ever say that? Do you ever tell people that God spoke to you? It doesn't mean you heard his voice audibly, at least I hope not, or else we need to talk to you again about some other stuff. It means you had a strong sense of his leading you. And there are times you might even say the Spirit drove you. You had such a strong sense of what God had for you or wanted you to do or was sending you If you haven't had those experiences, maybe you're not listening. If you have had them, when was the last time you had them of being driven? Think about it and and just ask the Lord to be more active in leading and guiding you. The Savior who was promised to our original parents when they were in a beautiful garden was driven out into a rugged, dangerous wilderness. The contrast, of course, is intentional. What the first man forfeited in a garden would be regained by the second man in the desert. We're not done with this word drove, not just yet. One commentator wrote, and I quote, the present tense of the verb drove marks the first occurrence of the historical present in this gospel, a characteristic feature of Mark's style. It vividly depicts the action as though taking place before the reader's very eyes. It is to writing what 3D is to movies, or better yet, it's like virtual reality. Mark writes in a way that makes you feel you are there with Jesus in the wilderness. We probably lose some of this in the translation into English, and so we have to remind ourselves that Mark, the way he's writing is pulling us into the action. And this is a reason why he doesn't give a lot of explanation or a lot of theology or a lot of background, because he wants you to be in the scene. He wants you to see what's happening. And not lose the inter- all of that with interpreting and stuff like that. The other gospel writers do a good job of that. Mark wants you there. He wants you to see Jesus serving. Verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Mark portrays him as being constantly tempted, not just the three great temptations Matthew mentions at the end, when Jesus was at his weakest from fasting. 
How long are the rounds in MMA or in boxing or a wrestling match for that matter? This was a 40-day, day and night contest that involved the spiritual as well as the physical. Satan may have felt he had the advantage. After all, he knew Jesus well from heaven as the glorious, eternal second person of the Trinity. Think about that for a minute. Satan knew Jesus. He had been with him in heaven. And he knew him as that second person of the Trinity. Now here he was, a puny human. Sure, he was the God-man, but what did that mean? It meant he was hungry, that he was weak, that he was thirsty, that he was tired, and all that meant that he was temptable. Mark is the only gospel writer who mentions the wild beasts. Kenneth Weiss writes, the region abounded with boars, jackals, wolves, foxes, leopards, and hyenas. Angels ministered to him. This was Satan's first clue, perhaps, that defeating the God-man would be no walk in the park. Still, the advantage on the surface belongs to Satan. Wait a minute, you object. You're not factoring in the Holy Spirit. Satan had faced spirit-filled men before. Though any one of them could defeat him at any time, and many did, he was the master at overcoming them ultimately with temptation. In the Old Testament, I want you to think about David, the physical ancestor of Jesus, the great shepherd king of Israel. Sure, he killed Goliath. He easily conquered Philistines by the hundreds. He captured Jerusalem with barely a fight. But can you also say Bathsheba? The devil is no novice when it comes to dealing with spirit-filled men. With the exception of Joseph and Daniel, Satan always defeated the spirit-filled man at some point with temptations. But not this one. We're going to see that Satan is no match for the spirit-baptized man. You say that Jesus was more than a man, that he was the God-man, and that's how this contest was won. Well, he was both God and man. Never forget that. Jesus never set aside his deity. He never quit being God. But while he was on the earth, he voluntarily set aside the prerogatives of his deity and lived strictly as a man. This is something that is so profound. We have to remember this. Jesus was and always will be the God-man, fully God, fully human. But while he was on the earth doing his ministry... He functioned fully and totally as a man, setting aside his deity so that he could what? Be the model of what it means to be a spirit-filled man. And what a model he was. And so we learn from this initial temptation in the wilderness, Satan is no match for the spirit-baptized man. We're going to see just what that looks like as we follow Jesus' footsteps in this gospel. Demons tremble. Diseases will be healed. Men and women and children will be saved by the thousands, by the ten thousands. It will cost Jesus his life, but of course by laying down his life, he's able to take up his life again in the resurrection. Want to follow Jesus? It will cost you your life. You must lay down your life, die to self, and take up the cross. But you too will experience the resurrection. First, it's power in your life as a spirit-baptized individual, and then in the future when you are raised or raptured 